O loving Father, Lord, You are good, You're righteous, You're holy, You're perfect in all of Your ways, all of Your attributes. Lord, You created us in Your image. Your desire for us is that we would have Your character. But Lord, sin has gotten in the way. And Lord, we have fallen short. But tonight we're going to talk about a very important subject that You want us to know the truth on. And so, Lord, we need Your help. And our prayer is that the Holy Spirit would guide us into all truth. I have been uh, telling everyone here that if we would ask You, You would do that very thing. You promised to do it. And so I'm counting on that. And Lord, I'm asking that by the end of the night, that every person in this room would be able to set aside their preconceived notions, ideas, teachings, their worldview, whatever uh, view they may have had of who the Antichrist is, and Lord, we would just look at what the Bible says. And maybe it would be in agreement with what they've already learned, and maybe it would be different. But Lord, help us to see what you say, and then help us to adjust our lives accordingly. That's our desire, and that's our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, tonight we're going to talk about the Antichrist. And I thought that I would just start off by saying that the whole basis and the premise of this seminar is to get you interested in reading your Bible. To get you interested in the authority and the validity of the Bible. But most of all, my desire is that as we hear these messages, that we would come to base all of our conclusions on the Bible. Now, you may think, well, that's pretty plain and that's, you know, easy thing to do. And that it's just something that we take for granted. But it's not. You see, I have found that people listen to what you have to say until what you're teaching conflicts with their preconceived notions, ideas, their training that they've had in the past. And even though they may be seeing the truth, when it conflicts, people tend to shut down. They tend to tune out. And I want to say to you, please just hear me out. Just uh, listen to what the Bible has to say and uh, set aside any ideas that you may have about who the Antichrist is. Because the reality is, is there's a lot of different teachings out there today. But what we want to know is what the Bible says, don't we? And so let's just realize that this message tonight might challenge some of you. And when that happens, people tend to tune out and really what they're saying is, don't confuse me with the facts because I've already made up my mind. Right? And so I'll just tell you from my own personal walk that there have been times in my journey that I've had to change my position. I've had a certain preconceived idea or teaching that I've had that 
that someone has given me, but then later on, I've dug deeper into it and I've discovered more truth and I've changed my position. And I hope that we are willing to do that because the reality is that if we are going to truly be changed and be like Christ, then we have to be willing to change, right? We have to be willing to allow God to do in us what we can't do in ourselves. And so I'm just going to ask you to allow the Holy Spirit to do the work tonight. Because tonight's message is very important when it comes to understanding Bible prophecy. And to understand the events of the end of the world. And ultimately, to understand how to escape the deceptions that are going on in these last days. And so tonight we are going to look deep into this issue of who is the Antichrist. Now, I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John is right before the book of Revelation. It's going to be page 1399 if you're using one of our seminar Bibles on your table there. But uh, the first thing that I want you to understand is that the Bible uses the, the name Antichrist five times. There are only five times in the Bible that the word Antichrist is actually used. And uh, all of them are by the Apostle John in his epistles here. The first four of them are in 1 John and 2 John, and then the last one is going to be in 2 John. Now, let's take a look at 1 John uh, chapter 2, and let's see what John has to say about the Antichrist and what we can learn from him. And so 1 John chapter 2, look with me at verse 18 and 19. The Bible says, John says to us, little children... It is the last hour. And as you have heard that the, what's the word? Antichrist. So this is the first time that Antichrist is used in the Bible. You've heard that the Antichrist is coming. Even now, many, what? Antichrist. And so this is the second time that this word is used. That many Antichrists have come, by which we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that none of them were with us. Now the first couple of things that we learn here, first of all, notice that John says, Antichrist is coming. Did you catch that? Okay, and then he also says, even now many antichrists have come. And then notice that he says, they have gone out from us. Now I ask you the question, who is the us that John is talking about? The church, that's right. John was a part of the first century church, right? He was one of the apostles. He walked with Jesus. And now this fledgling church 
And John is saying that these antichrists were with us, but now they have gone out from us. All right, now let's look at the next one. The third time that the word antichrist is used is, is right here in 1 John chapter 2, just a couple of verses later, verse 22. He says, Who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? He is antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. And so what John is telling us here is that anyone who denies the relationship of the Father and the Son, that Christ came and He is uh, both God and man. If anyone denies that, then they are anti-Christ. Now, let's go to the next one. 1 John chapter 4. And notice what it says. Uh, let's start in verse 2. He says, By this you know the Spirit of God, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. So he starts off by saying that if someone says that Christ came in the flesh, then that is of God. And then he goes on to say, and every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. And so here we see that there is this concept of Antichrist, but there is also what he calls the spirit of Antichrist. Did you catch that? Okay, so in other words, what he's saying is that this is in the same manner of workings as the Antichrist. And that's why John could say earlier that many Antichrists have already come. Because we're not necessarily talking about that there would be many uh, end-time powers that are going to do this, but it's the same manner of working as the Antichrist that can be seen throughout history. And that is the spirit of Antichrist. Okay, so now let's go to the fifth time that the word Antichrist is used, and that's in Second John. And there's only one chapter here, so we're just going to go to verse 7. And John says, For many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ is coming in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Now here we see that what John is telling us is the antichrist is a what? A deceiver. Okay, so now, besides these five times that the word antichrist is specifically used in the Bible, there are a, there are a few uh, primary prophecies in which the key prophetic figure in that prophecy is commonly referred to as antichrist. And we talked about that last night. And I told you there were four places in the Bible that talked about that. Daniel chapter 7, Daniel chapter 8, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and Revelation chapter 13. And so I want to look at those four times. First of all, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, I'd like you to notice that Paul calls the Antichrist the man of sin. So there is another way of referring to the Antichrist. It's the man of sin. And you remember that we talked about last night that he was also called the lawless one. That's because 
if you are a man of sin, then you are disobeying God's law and therefore you are lawless, right? So the lawless one or the man of sin would also be talking about the Antichrist. And then when you go to Daniel chapter 7, and then it repeats it again in Daniel chapter 8, it refers to the little horn. And so we're going to talk about this little horn tonight, but that is another way of referring to the Antichrist. It's the little horn of Daniel chapter 7. And then in Revelation chapter 13, we already looked at this. We saw that there were two beasts in Revelation 13, but that first beast we read about in in Revelation 13 verses 1 through 10, and we saw that this is the first beast, but we saw that it was also the Antichrist because he spoke blasphemies and he persecuted God's people. And so that is the way that we can also refer to uh, our different names in the Bible. So let's go back and look at those. Let's go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, that's going to be page 1360 in your seminar Bible. The Lord said to uh, Adam... Cursed is the ground for your sake. In other words, what God was saying is, Adam, it's good for you that you have to work the ground. It's going to build your character. And so there's nothing wrong with a little bit of work. And that includes looking for the verses in your Bible. (laughs) It is good for you to learn your way through the Bible. Okay, I've wasted enough time here. Is everybody in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2? If you are, say amen. Amen. All right. Now, look with me starting in verse 1. The Apostle Paul says to the Thessalonians, he's saying to us, Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day, that's the coming of the Lord, will not come unless the what? The falling away comes first, and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And now you know what is restraining, that he may be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he's taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish, because they did not receive a love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie, that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Now, I want you to notice a couple of things here. First of all, notice that, it, that Paul said that the day of the Lord is not going to come unless 
the falling away comes first, right? Now, I want to let you know that if you go back to the original Greek text, the word that is used for falling away is apostasia. And that word means uh, a defection or an apostasy or a falling away from the truth. It is the feminine counterpart of the Greek word apostasian, which means a divorce. And so what you have here is someone who is divorcing themselves from the truth. Someone who is falling away from the truth or apostatizing. Right? Now, we need to recognize that there is a popular view of the Antichrist today. There is a popular teaching. And I don't know if you have heard this before or not, but let me just tell you what that popular view is. And that is that it's a single man, a sinister man, outside of the church at the end of time who is attacking Christianity. I don't know if you've ever heard that before or not, but that's what the popular view is. But notice what the Bible says. What Paul is telling us here is that according to the the, the Bible, the Antichrist has to be revealed as a result of apostasy. And this, therefore, is not an outside attacker but it is an inside imposter. Remember what we read in 1 John chapter 2, verse 19. John said, they have gone out from us. Right? So they were a part of the church, but then they defected, they divorced, they apostatized, they fell away from the truth. Now, there's another name that is given to the Antichrist that reveals an infiltration from the inside of Christianity and not an outside attacker. And I'd like you to look with me here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Look at verse 3. It says, Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day, that's the coming of the Lord, will not come unless the falling away comes first, And the what? The man of sin. The what? The son of perdition. And so here's another name yet for the Antichrist, the son of perdition. Now, remember what we said on night number one. The way to study the Bible is line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little, there a little. Isaiah 28, verse 10. We've got to put it all together. Well, if you look in your Bible, there's only one other place that this name or title, Son of Perdition, is used. And you may remember that it's in John chapter 17, verse 12. And notice what happens. This is the time when Jesus calls Judas, the disciple who betrayed him, the Son of Perdition. And let me ask you the question, how did Judas betray Jesus? Did did he come as an outside attacker? No, remember what happened. He came up to Jesus and he kissed him. And you remember what Jesus said? Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? Okay, so the Antichrist 
would come from inside of Christianity, not as an outside attacker, but as a son of perdition. An inside deceiver. Now notice what it says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Look at verse 5 again. Paul says, Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And so let me ask you a question. How did Paul know about the Antichrist? The book of Revelation hadn't been written yet, right? So how did he know? Well, he knew from the beast from Daniel chapter 7, right? And, and I just want to say to you that the little horn of Daniel chapter 7 and the first beast of Revelation chapter 13 are what nearly every single Bible commentary that's out there refer to as the Antichrist. Now, we are going to be going back and forth in our Bibles between the book of Daniel chapter 7 and the book of Revelation chapter 13. So you might want to have some uh, bookmarks there that you can put in there so that we can flip back and forth. And remember what I said last night. The book of Daniel and the book of Revelation are companion books, aren't they? So we are going to compare these to each other. And one of the first things that we notice about this Antichrist that both Daniel 7 and Revelation chapter 13 tell us is that he speaks great things or pompous words and blasphemies, that he persecutes God's people, and that in both Daniel 7 and Revelation 13, they're for the exact same prophetic period of time. And so by looking at these characteristics of the Antichrist in these two chapters, we can pick up all of the clues that we need to figure out who the Antichrist is. Now, I'm just going to tell you now that I am going to give you seven clues tonight about who the Antichrist is. And there's more. I'm going to give you some more tomorrow night. But with these seven, that's going to be enough for us to determine tonight who the Antichrist is. So let's start by going... Hold your place here in Revelation 13. Uh, If you still have it, we're coming back. But go to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel's the last of the major prophets in the Old Testament. It's going to be page 1029 if you're using one of those seminar Bibles from your table. But I'd like you to notice what it says in Daniel chapter 7, and I'm going to start reading in verse 1. Daniel 7 verse 1 says, In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon. You remember who Belshazzar is? We saw him last night in Daniel chapter 5. He was the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar, right? So notice what it says. It is in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head while on his bed. And then he wrote down the dream telling the main facts. Daniel spoke, saying, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts came up from the sea, each different from the other. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. I watched till its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the earth and made to stand on two feet like a man, and a man's heart was given to it. And suddenly another beast, a second, like a bear, It was raised up on one side and had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And they said thus to it, Arise, devour much flesh. 
After this I looked, and there was another, like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. It had huge iron teeth. It was devouring, breaking in pieces, and trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I was considering the horns, and there was another horn, a little one, coming up among them, before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots, and there in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking pompous words. Now, I'd like you to go down to verse 15. Notice what it says. I, Daniel, was grieved in my spirit within my body, and the visions of my head troubled me. I came near to one of those who stood by me. This is who Daniel is seeing, some person in his vision. And he asked him the truth of all of this. And so he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. Those great beasts which are four are four kings which arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. Then I wished to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful, with its teeth of iron and its nails of bronze, which devoured broken pieces and trampled the residue with its feet. And the ten horns that were on its head and the other horn which came up before which three fell, namely that horn which had eyes and a mouth which spoke pompous words, whose appearance was greater than his fellows. I was watching, and the same horn was making war against the saints and prevailing against them, until the Ancient of Days came, and a judgment was made in the favor of the saints of the Most High, and the time came for the saints to possess the kingdom. Thus he said, The fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all of the other kingdoms, and shall devour the whole earth, trample it, and break it in pieces. The ten horns are ten kings who shall arise from this kingdom, and another shall rise after them. He shall be different from the first ones and shall subdue three kings. He shall speak pompous words against the Most High, shall persecute the saints of the Most High, and shall intend to change times and law. Then the saints shall be given into his hand for a time, a times, and a half a time. Now, I I, I want you to notice, first of all, that when we're reading Daniel chapter 7, verses 1 through 8 is the vision or the dream that Daniel had. Did you pick up on that? Okay, and then when we went down to verse 15 through 25, that's the interpretation. I am so glad that Daniel didn't just have that dream, but God actually gave him the interpretation. Amen? Now, the first thing that we see here in Daniel chapter 7, starting in verse 1, is that we see that there are these beasts that come up out of the water that is being stirred up by the four winds. Did you see that? Now let's see if we can figure out what this means. We already talked about this, but remember that we saw in Revelation chapter 17, verse 15, that water symbolizes in prophecy peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues, right? Or richly, densely populated areas. We've already talked about that. So... Uh, we understand that already. But what does wind represent? What is it symbolizing? I'd like you to notice what it says in Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 7. The lion has come up from his thicket. And the what? 
the destroyer of nations is on his way. And then notice what Jeremiah says a few verses later in verse 13. He says, and his, that's the destroyer, his chariots like a whirlwind, his horses are swifter than eagles. So when, when you see chariots, when, when were chariots used? For war, that's right. So if you went to Revelation chapter 7, you would notice that there's this great destruction that is going to come upon the earth and the angels are told to hold back the four winds until the servants of God are marked on their forehead. Do you remember that? And so the obvious implication is that when they stop holding back the four winds, that destruction is going to come. And so wind represents strife or destruction. And so if you have a bunch of strife in a richly, densely populated area, what do you have? You have war. And you have one nation coming in through war and conquering the nation that is there. And then that nation rises up in that place. And we've already talked about that, haven't we? And so when we see uh, these nations that are rising up out of the sea, they are not going and finding land that is uninhabited and growing up in that area. They are conquering the nation that was in that area before them through war. Now, I'd like you to notice here in Daniel chapter 7, look with me at verse 17 again. This is the interpretation that Daniel's being given, and it says, those great feasts, those great beasts which are four are what? Four kings which arise out of the earth. Now, I'd like you to notice that, well, look at verse 23. Uh, it says, thus he said, the fourth beast shall be a what? A fourth kingdom. Remember on the first night that I told you that a beast represented a nation? Well, here we see. I told you, I, I just told you that, but I told you I was going to show you later. Here it is in Daniel chapter 7. It, it's uh, giving us the symbol of a beast and it's telling us that a beast represents a king, a kingdom, a nation, a power of, of some sort. Now, notice what this first beast is. It's a lion with wings, right? It has eagle's wings. Now, I also told you last night that Daniel chapter 2, Daniel chapter 7, and Daniel chapter 8 are all parallel prophecies. You remember me saying that? Now, I'm going to show that to you. You remember in Daniel chapter 2 that we saw that uh, image of that man who had four different metals, right? Now, in Daniel chapter 7, we're seeing four beasts coming up out of the sea. So, if the head of gold represented who? Babylon. So if they're parallel prophecies, then what should this first beast that looks like a lion with eagle's wings, who should it represent? Babylon. 
And I would like you to notice from archaeology the Babylonian winged lion. The, the strength and the swiftness of the Babylonians is represented in this winged lion. But you'll remember that Babylon was conquered. And you will recall that it was Cyrus, the king of the Medes and the Persians, and we read about that in, uh, in chapter 5, that Daniel chapter 5, that they were the ones that came in and defeated Babylon, right? And so, what is the next beast that comes up out of the sea? A bear. That's right. And so this bear then represents the Medes and the Persians. And there's something significant about this bear. Notice that it is a bear that is raised up on one side, right? And you'll remember in Daniel chapter 2 that we saw that the chest and arms represent the Medes and the Persians. Now we see this bear that's raised up on one side. And if you go to Daniel chapter 8, you will see this ram that has two horns, but one horn comes up later or higher. And the reason for that is because the Medes and the Persians were two separate kingdoms, but they made an alliance and they conquered the world. But it was the Persians who later became stronger and pretty soon it just became known in history as the Persian Empire. And so you see how those parallel prophecies are working there. And, and then we see that it had three ribs in its mouth. It's not significant for us to know this uh, for our study tonight. And you can look at this later, but I'll just tell you that those three ribs were three provinces that uh, Medo-Persia really had some difficulty with. And that was Babylon, Lydia, and Egypt. And you can study that out on your own later. But who was it then who conquered the Medes and the Persians? It was Greece, that's right. And the Greek uh, empire had a great king or general who was leading them. And who was that? That's right, Alexander the Great. And they were very fast in their conquering. And that's why this uh, leopard who has four wings represents the speed and the swiftness with which Greece conquered the world. In fact, uh, history shows us that Alexander the Great, uh, by the time he was uh, somewhere between 30 and 33 years old, he had already conquered the entire world. And so they did it very quickly. But we also see in Daniel chapter 8 that there is this male goat that also represents Greece. And it, we saw last night, it identified them by name, didn't it? And so there's no question about this, that it says that that, that, that uh, goat who had a notable horn, and we saw that that notable horn was Alexander, he ran at that ram with such speed that his feet didn't even touch the ground. And every time I read that, I can't help but think about that cartoon, Bugs Bunny and Roadrunner. That Roadrunner ran so fast, his feet didn't even touch the ground, right? And that's showing the swiftness of that. But we also see that that leopard has four heads. 
But remember what we read in Daniel chapter 8. And that was that goat had that notable horn, but when he ran at that ram and he hit him, his notable horn broke off and four horns came up in its place. You remember that? Because what happened is uh, Alexander the Great died at a very young age. History says between 30 and 33 years old. And there's a couple of different reasons that they give that he might have died. The one I think is probably the most likely is that he died in a drunken stupor. Apparently they had this Herculean cup and uh, they put beer or some kind of alcohol in it and they wanted to see who could drink it, right? And whoever could was considered, you know, Hercules. Well, apparently one night Alexander the Great drank the Herculean cup. Not once, but twice. And then he died. But right before Alexander died, they had asked him who was going to be his successor. And he didn't have any children. But he told them, the kingdom goes to the strongest. Well, after he died, his four generals began fighting for control. And it ended up, the kingdom ended up being divided into four. And it was his general, Lysimachus, who took over the north area of the kingdom, which was Asia Minor. It was his general, Ptolemy, who took over the south, which included Egypt, Palestine, and Arabia. It was another general by the name of Seleucus, who took the east and Syria, and Cassander, who took over the west, Macedon, and Greece. And history shows that. Now, this is clearly represented by that leopard, with four heads. So, of course, Greece was also conquered. And who were they conquered by? By the Romans. And here we see the fourth beast that Daniel sees coming up out of the sea. Now, the first one was like a lion. The next one was like a bear. The next one was like a leopard. So what kind of zoo animal was this one? It wasn't any kind of zoo animal. Daniel had never seen anything like this before, right? He just called it a dreadful beast. And it had iron teeth. Hmm, isn't that a coincidence? No, it's not a coincidence. It's the iron monarchy of Rome. And this beast corresponds to the legs of iron in Daniel chapter 2. And you'll remember that that kingdom was not conquered by anyone else, but they divided. And we saw that in the ten toes, right? But now we see in Daniel chapter 7 that this dreadful beast has how many horns? Ten horns. That's right. And that corresponds to the same thing it did in Daniel chapter 2, the breakup of the Roman Empire into the ten divisions of Europe. Now, we've already talked about this, but let me just show it to you on the screen here. That head of gold represented Babylon, and the winged lion represented Babylon. The chest and arms of silver and the bear represent Persia. The belly and thighs of brass or bronze, and the four-winged, four-headed leopard uh, represented Greece. And then Rome was identified by those legs of iron and that dreadful beast of Daniel chapter 7 And then what we're seeing here is that pan and zoom principle, right? God in Daniel chapter 2 is panning all across history. 
And then in Daniel chapter 7, from a different perspective, he's panning across history. But then when he gets to the time of Rome and the time of that dreadful beast, he zooms in and he gives us some more details. And so, notice what it says in Daniel chapter 7 verse 8. I was considering the horns, and there was another horn, a little one coming up among them. And so here's this little horn, and this little horn then parallels Revelation chapter 13, that first beast, which is called the Antichrist. And I want to show you this. Now, let me ask you a question. Where does this little horn come up from? It comes up from the fourth beast, doesn't it? And the fourth beast represents who? Rome. So this little horn comes out of Rome. Do you see that? The little horn, which we know to be the Antichrist has to come out of Rome because it comes up out of the fourth beast. Just like the ten horns were there, that little horn came up in that same place. And so the little horn or the Antichrist has to come out of Rome. So the the next thing we see then is even more specifically that that little horn comes up among the ten, right? And the ten horns represented the divisions of Rome. And so that little horn is coming up among the ten divisions. So, let's look at it again. I was considering the horns, and there was another horn, a little one, coming up among them. And so this power would come out of Rome among the nations that are represented by the toes in Daniel chapter 2 and the horns in Daniel chapter 7, which are the divisions of Western Rome. And so this is a very important clue when it comes to determining who the Antichrist is. And it gives us some very important information. It gives us an idea of the timing of the appearing of the Antichrist. And it gives us the place of the appearing of the Antichrist. And remember those ten divisions... We had the Alemannis, the Burgundians, the Franks, the Lombards, the Saxons, the Suevi, the Visigoths. And then you'll remember those three nations that were uprooted, the Heruli, the Ostrogoth, and the Vandals who are now extinct. These were the Germanic tribes that resulted as a breakup of Rome. And so here we learn clue number one. The Antichrist has to come out of Rome. Because the little horn came up out of the fourth beast. Now, here's the thing, friends. There are a lot of different views that people have. I've heard, I've heard people say Bill Gates is the Antichrist. I've heard people say Barack Obama is the Antichrist. But what does the Bible say? The Bible says that that little horn comes up out of that fourth beast. So 
the Antichrist has to come from Rome, according to the Bible. We also notice here that the Antichrist rose after the fall of Western Roman Empire when it broke up into the ten divisions. And if you go to your history books, you'll see that Rome divided into those ten European kingdoms in 476 A.D. And so that's clue number two. The Antichrist has to rise sometime shortly after 476 A.D. And I say shortly after because history says that the divisions happened in 476 A.D. But when we see this beast, it already has ten horns. So that division has already happened. And then that little horn comes up among them. So he has to come up shortly after the division of Rome. Does that make sense? Okay. Turn with me in your Bibles. Hold your place here in Daniel. We're coming back. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 13. Revelation chapter 13. And look with me. That's going to be page 1417 in your seminar Bible. But notice what it says in verse 7. It was granted to him, that's the uh, Antichrist, to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. Now this is a very interesting point. This power or this nation has authority over every tribe, tongue, nation, and people of the earth. So being that this nation or this power or entity has authority over the nations, therefore it must be a strong political power. Think about the United States for a moment. We are the, lar- we are the, the superpower of the world, right? And, and so therefore, we have political clout, don't we? We have control over many of the nations of the world. And the same is true of this power. Because it has uh, authority over every tribe, tongue, and nation, it must have political power. And so that's clue number three. The Antichrist is a strong political power. Now, let's do a comparison here between Daniel chapter 7 and Revelation chapter 13. I'd like you to turn with me back to Daniel 7. And we're going to look at verse 25. Notice what it says. He shall speak, what's that word? Pompous words against the Most High shall persecute the saints of the Most High, and shall intend to change times and laws, then the saints shall be given into His hand for a time and times and half a time. Now go back to Revelation chapter 13 and look with me at verse 5. And notice what it says. First of all, we saw in Daniel chapter 7, verse 25, that this Antichrist speaks pompous words against the Most High. Now we see in Revelation chapter 13, verse 5, that it says, and he was given a mouth speaking great things. That's, that's pompous words. And what's the next word? Blasphemies. Now, I want to ask you a question. What is blasphemy? 
Well, I'd like you to notice the definition from the American Heritage Dictionary. Blasphemy is the act of claiming for oneself the attributes and rights of God. Now, that's a pretty good definition, but remember what we said earlier. We don't want these outside sources to to tell us what the Bible means, right? We've got to let the Bible interpret itself. And so what are we going to do? We're going to go to Isaiah 28, verse 10, and see what he said. He said, line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little there, though. So what we've got to do is we've got to look in the Bible to see where this word blasphemy is and see what it means. Well, let's do that. Let's see how the Bible defines blasphemy. Notice in Mark chapter 2, verse 5 through 7, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven you. And some of the scribes were sitting there reasoning in their hearts, why does this man speak what? Blasphemies like this. Who can forgive sins but God alone? So the first biblical definition of blasphemy is claiming to be able to forgive sins. Because no man can do that. Only God can forgive sins, right? All right, let's look at the second definition. John chapter 10, verse 30 through 33. Jesus said, I and my Father are one. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, Many good works I have shown you from my Father. For which of these works do you stone me? And the Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we do not stone you, but for what? blasphemy because you being a man make yourself God and so the second definition of blasphemy according to the Bible is a mere man taking upon themselves the prerogatives of God or claiming to have the authority of God the Bible speaks of this another way in 2nd Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 4 I'll just read that to you notice what it says He's talking about the Antichrist. It says he exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped so that he sits as God in the temple of God showing himself that he is God. And so this is clearly a picture of blasphemy that is defined by this power. He is not blaspheming because he is an outside attacker from outside of the church But he is blaspheming because he is claiming to be able to forgive sins and claiming to have the prerogatives of God, the authority of God. Does that make sense? All right, so that's clue number four. The Antichrist is a blaspheming power. In the book of Daniel, you'll remember chapter 7, verse 8 says... I was considering the horns, and there was another horn, a little one, coming up among them, before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots, and there in this horn were what? Eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking pompous words. Now, what does it mean that this little horn, this Antichrist, this power, has eyes like the eyes of a man. Some people read that and they say, well, if he has eyes like the eyes of a man, then that fits with that view that a lot of people have of the Antichrist, that it's a single man in the future, outside of Christianity, that is persecuting God's people. 
But what does the Bible say, right? I'd like you to notice that in the Bible, a prophet is called a seer. That's because they see with God's eyes. And so here is someone who sees with God's eyes, someone who is giving God's counsel. He sees with God's wisdom and he is speaking on behalf of God. And so we have the eyes of God. But this little horn, this Antichrist, has the eyes of a man. So then what we're seeing here is that his teachings are based on the wisdom of man rather than on the wisdom of God. And so this Antichrist is not an outside attacker, but he is an inside imposter. And he deceives, it says in 2 Thessalonians and in Revelation 13, and it also says that he is revealed after apostasy or a falling away from the truth. But all the while, he is claiming to have the special authority of God on earth, exalting himself above all that is called God and showing himself that he is God. And so this is clearly a religious power. And that makes him different from all of the other horns that he came up amongst in Daniel chapter 7, which is exactly what the prophecy said. Remember, the other horns were the ten divisions of Europe, and this power would rise up among them and uproot three of the ten. And so the Antichrist is a human religious system based on the teachings of man based on the commandments of men rather than the commandments of God. And the prophecy said, He shall be different from the first ones. So how is it that He is different? The other horns were merely political powers while this horn has both political and religious power. I tell you that he has religious power because remember what it said in Revelation 13, verse 8. All who dwell on the earth will worship him, whose names are not written in the book of the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. So this is not just a political power with authority over nations, but it is a religious power, someone who receives worship. And it's not just a religious power, but it is a universal religious power. Because who worships Him? Revelation chapter 13 verse 3 says, All the world wonders after the beast. Verse 8 says, All who dwell on the earth will worship Him. And so this isn't just one guy somewhere out in the future uh, attacking Christianity. This is a beast. And you'll remember that a beast represents a nation, a kingdom, a power. So there's no way that the Antichrist can be one single man. You catch that? Very important. And it's not only a religious power, but clue number five, he is a universal religious power. Because the Bible says that the whole world wonders after the beast and all of the world worships the beast. Now let's look at our next clue. 
Revelation chapter 13 verse 7 says, It was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them, and authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, nation, and people. Now I'd like you to zoom in there on those words. It was granted to him to make war with the saints. Now go with me back to Daniel chapter 7. And let's look at verse 25 again. It says, He shall speak pompous words against the Most High. He shall what? Persecute the saints of the Most High. Another way of saying making war with the saints is persecuting the saints, right? And so our sixth clue is that the Antichrist is a persecuting power. Now, if you look back with me in Daniel chapter 7, look at verse 25 again. And I'd like you to notice how long does this power reign? What does it say there? Daniel 7, 25. Time, times, and half a time. Now, I want you to hold your place there, but let's go back to Revelation. But this time, let's go to Revelation 12. And I'd like you to notice what it says here in verse 13 and 14. It says, Now when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, uh, first of all, who's the dragon? Satan. He persecuted the woman. Who's the woman? The church or God's people who gave birth to the male child. That's Jesus. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for how long? Time, times, and a half a time. Same exact prophetic period of time, right? Now look with me in Revelation chapter 12, but look at verse 6. Then the woman, talking about the church, fled into the wilderness. This is a different perspective of the same scene where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her for how long? 1,260 days. Now, there's one more. Look with me in Revelation chapter 13, but look at verse 5. It says, And he, that's the Antichrist, was given a mouth, speaking great things and blasphemies, and he was given authority to continue for how long? For 42 months. Now, let's do a little bit of calculating here. Time in the Bible is one year. Times, then, would be two years, and a half a time would be a half a year. Now, you're really smart people, and you're looking at my numbers here, and you're saying, hold on a minute, Pastor. Isn't a year 365 days? You have 360 up there. Well, you're right. In our way of timekeeping, there's 365 days in a year, but not for the Jews. The Jews go on the lunar calendar. They have a 30-day month. So 30 days in a month times 12 months equals 360 days in a year. Now you might be thinking, yeah, Pastor, but you told us we got to let the Bible interpret itself. All right, let's do that. I'm not going to go there. I'm going to save some time, but write these down. You go to Genesis chapter 7, and I want to read to you verse 11. Genesis 7, 11. And I'd like you to notice what it says. It says, In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, 
On that day, all of the fountains of the deep broke up and the windows of heaven were opened and the rain was on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. So what we see here in this verse is that the flood began in the second month on the 17th day. Okay? Keep those figures in mind. Second month, 17th day. Now, if you go down to Genesis chapter 7, verse 24, it says that the waters prevailed on the earth for 150 days. So let's put that together. The flood began on the second month, the 17th day, and the flood was on the earth for 150 days. Now, if you go to Genesis chapter 8 and verse 3, notice what it says. And the waters resided continually from the earth, and at the end of 150 days the water decreased. Then the ark rested the seventh month, the seventeenth day of the month. And so, I'd like you to notice what happened here. The flood began the second month, the seventeenth day, and the ark rested on the seventh month, the exact same day. So how many months do we have from the 2nd to the 7th? 2 to 3, 3 to 4, 4 to 5, 5 to 6, 6 to 7. We have 5 months and it said that it was 150 days. So 150 days divided by 5 months, the Bible says there are 30 days in a month. There you go. So let's look at it again. A time is 360 days, times is 720 days, a year, a half a year is 180 days, and they total what time? 1,260. Now we had one more figure, 42 months. What's 42 months times 30? If you want to get your calculator out, you can, but I'll just tell you, 1,260 days. They're all exactly the same prophetic period of time. Now... Let me tell you what's important about this or give you the key to this. Each day in prophecy represents a year. Again, we want to let the Bible interpret itself, right? So I'll just give you these verses. Ezekiel chapter 4, verse 6. And what happened is Israel rebelled against God for 40 years. Four zero years. And notice what God said to Ezekiel. When you have completed them, lie again on your right side. Then you should bear the iniquity of the house of Judah forty days. I have laid on you a day for each year. And so here we see the Bible using a day for a year principle. You can also see that. Let me give you another reference. Numbers chapter 14 verse 34. Another very similar story. Now I want to explain this to you. Nearly every single Bible commentary that is out there all agree that it is a day for a year principle, especially when you come into the prophecy of Daniel chapter 9, the 70 week prophecy. And we're going to get into that. We're going to talk about that in this seminar. But that 70 week prophecy, if you take 70 weeks times seven days in a week, you get 490 days, right? But nearly every Bible commentary out there agrees that it's 490 years. You want to know why? Because it fits the prophecy perfectly. Absolutely perfectly. I don't know a single Bible commentary out there that does not agree with that. Because the prophecy fits perfectly for 490 years. 
it can't fit for 490 days. Now, that prophecy in Daniel chapter 9 really sets the tone uh, for all of the other prophecies in the Bible. That a day equals a year. So these prophecies represent not just a little short period of time, but they cover large spans of history. In fact, in Daniel chapter 8, there's a prophecy for 2,300 days. And 2,300 days, if you added that up, that, that's a little over six years. Okay? But in that prophecy, you go all the way from Medo-Persia, all the way down through Greece, Rome, divided Rome, all the way down to our day. There's no way that 2,300 days could literally cover that. It has to be 2,300 years. All In all of these prophecies, God is consistent in what He is saying again and again. So the next clue that we have, clue number seven, is that the Antichrist rules for time, time, and a half a time, 1,260 days, 42 months, which are all prophetic days, which is... 1,260 literal years. So let's do a little review here. The Antichrist has to proceed out of Rome. It has to come up out of Rome because that little horn came up out of the fourth beast, which we identified as Rome. The, the second one there, the Antichrist rises to power after 476 A.D. It has to be after that time period because that's when the divisions of Rome happened and that little horn came up after those were already in place. It's a strong political power, a blaspheming power, a universal religious power, a persecuting power, and he reigns for 1,260 years. So what we have here is a very visible, prominent religion with political clout founded in Rome in the 6th century, a power that held civil and religious sway over 1,200 years with a man at its head who is revered and worshipped as God on earth and claims to have the power to forgive sins. Now perhaps you already know who this is. But before we say who that is, I'd like to discuss a little bit of history for a moment. One of the most influential periods in religious history is known as the Protestant Reformation. Now, how many of you have ever heard of the Protestant Reformation? Okay, a good majority of you. This is one of the most influential periods uh, in religious history. And the visible church, which was basically just the Roman Catholic Church at that time, had become increasingly corrupt in the 14th and the 15th centuries. And there were many influential men known as reformers who were calling for change in the church. And, uh, and the teachings of the church. And the most notable of those, I just heard David say it, was Martin Luther. You remember he nailed his 95 theses to the wall in Wittenberg and he was calling for a reformation among the leadership of the church. 
And about the same time, the printing press was invented and mass copies of the Bible began to find their way into circulation and into the hands of the people who had never had the Bible to read for themselves before. And the more that the church fought against this Reformation, and these were Catholics who were calling for Reformation, the more that it seemed to grow. People were seeing from the Bible themselves that the teachings of the church were not compatible with the Bible's statement that uh, we have one mediator between God and man, and that's Jesus Christ. They began to see that paying for uh, our relatives for through indulgences is not accurate with the Bible. But what really poured fuel on this watershed moment in the history of the world was when the Reformers, men like John Wycliffe, Martin Luther, John Calvin, John Knox, Roger Williams, John Wesley, and many others like them, all began to search the prophecies for themselves and they all came to the exact same conclusion. That the church that they were fighting against was none other than the Antichrist of Bible prophecy. Now here's what they recognized at the same time. That it was not individuals in the church because they themselves were individuals in the church. They wanted to see the church reform. And yet they saw this institution that was carrying out things that are totally opposed to the Word of God. And so they felt more energy than ever before to carry on the Reformation. And so the major tenets of the Reformation were two things. The Bible as the rule of faith and the papacy is Antichrist. That is what fueled the Protestant Reformation. Now let me read to you a couple of quotes. This is from the American Bible commentator, Ralph Woodrow. He says, There are two great truths that stand out in the preaching that brought about the Protestant Reformation. The just shall live by faith, and the papacy is the Antichrist of Scripture. It was a message for Christ and against Antichrist. The entire Reformation rests on this twofold testimony. And then he goes on to say that it has been said that the Reformation first discovered Jesus Christ through the Bible and then in the blazing light of Christ it discovered Antichrist. Here's another quote. This time it's going to catch a little bit more about what fueled the Reformers. From the first and throughout that movement the Reformation was energized and guided by the prophetic word, by the prophecies. Luther never felt strong and free to war against the papal apostasy till he recognized the Pope as Antichrist. It was then that he burned the papal bull. Knox's first sermon, the sermon that launched him on his mission as a reformer, was on the prophecies concerning the papacy. The reformers embodied the interpretation of prophecy in their confession of faith and Calvin in his institutes. All the reformers were unanimous. They were what? They were unanimous in this matter. They were uh, all seeing the exact same thing. So friends, please notice this. This isn't something that I just came up with. 
This isn't something that I believe. This is something that the reformers who, who gave their lives for you and me discovered. This truth has been known for a long time. But remember what the Bible said the Antichrist would do. He would cast truth to the ground. All the Protestant churches that we have today, Lutherans for Martin Luther, Methodists for John Wesley, the Baptists from Roger Williams in America, John Calvin, you can go right down the line. All of their founders understood very clearly that the Antichrist of, of prophecy was fulfilled in the institution of the papacy. And there are many other quotes that I could share with you that I'm not going to from Martin Luther, John Knox, Roger Williams, the Westminster, Westminster Confession of Faith, uh, John Wesley Tyndall. There are, there are a lot of them. But here's where things get a little bit interesting. The Protestant Reformation was growing, but the institution of the papacy was not happy about the way things were going. And rather than reforming, what they did is they began to form these councils that would get together. And one of those councils, the one that is the most highly noted in history, is the Council of Trent. And the Council of Trent had a very specific purpose in their uh, being formed. And one of the primary teachings of the Catholic Church, here in this case the papal power as the Antichrist. And so they began to work in these councils, and specifically in the Council of Trent, with a new order of highly intelligent people known as the Society of Jesus. Well, today, they have another name. And you've heard that name. The Jesuits. And now I just want to ask you, what is our present Pope? He's a Jesuit. Now, remember that the reason that these people came together was to come up with something to counter the Reformation. They were asked to develop theological teachings that would fight this emphasis that they were the Antichrist and take the heat off of them. And so there was a man by the name of Francisco Ribera. And he was a Jesuit. And in 1590... He came out with a commentary on Revelation in which he came up with a new theory. And his new theory, and I just pulled this up on uh, an online encyclopedia, and I'm going to read that to you in a minute. But notice what it says about him. It says he died in 1591 at the age of 54, so he was not able to expand his work or write any other commentaries on Revelation. So remember what the purpose was in creating this council. It was to remove the Catholic Church from consideration as the Antichrist power. And so Robera proposed the first few chapters of the Apocalypse applied to ancient pagan Rome, and then the rest he eliminated all the way out into the future, a period of three and a half literal years immediately prior to the second coming of Christ. 
And so we see a couple of things here. First of all, it was in order to remove the papacy from being seen as Antichrist. That was the whole purpose in him writing this commentary. And that is his reasoning for coming up with this theory. And what was that theory? Well, basically, it was that Daniel 7 goes Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, and then a 1,500-year gap in which there was a single man, sinister, outside of the church, attacking Christianity. That's where that came from. And it didn't really catch on at first. But today it has caught on. Today you look at the popular teachings such as the Left Behind series and you understand this as futurism. They're saying that the, that the Antichrist is going to come sometime out in the future. Now, let me just say this to you. Believing that the Antichrist is someone who is going to come in the future outside of the church is a lot easier to preach. It is. To see that he is an outside attacker from outside of the church, not an inside imposter, is a lot easier to swallow. Now, let me tell you something. I believe that every man, woman, and child of God can understand this, though. Just as in the days of the Reformers, you and I should be able to put together the clues to see the truth. The question that we need to answer is, what is going to be your guide? Now, I understand that these things are hard to talk about. And I understand that we may have our preconceived notions and ideas about who the Antichrist is. But ultimately, I feel convicted by God to cling to the Bible over tradition. And I feel that there is no hope in clinging to human ideas over clinging to the Bible. Over keeping the commandments of men rather than keeping the commandments of God. And so I ask you again, friends, what is going to be your guide? Is it going to be your feelings? Is it going to be your preconceived notions or what your friends say or what you've heard or learned in the past? Or are you going to follow the truth? I'd like to close today by telling you a story about a woman by the name of Mary. Mary received a knock on her door. She was a sweet Catholic lady. She lived in an apartment complex and the caller at the door was a young man who was offering in-home Bible studies. And she was very open to studying the Bible. And so she invited him in. And after several of their studies, the topic of the heavenly sanctuary came up. And as the young man was making the different points to her, he knew that he was getting really close to exposing the fact that Jesus is our high priest. And knowing that she was a Catholic, in his heart he held his breath as he read to her 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5, which says, There is one God and one mediator between God and man, Jesus Christ. And then... He held his breath and he waited. 
And she looked from side to side. And finally she said to him, I've never confessed this to anyone before. But years ago, I stopped going to the confessional because I thought I needed to go straight to Jesus Christ rather than a man. And I don't know why the Catholic Church teaches that. And friends, you may feel the same way. Like this dear Catholic lady, many of you may be going through the same experience. Anxiously waiting and, 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 and uh, visiting earthly priests to find peace in your heart, but to no avail. Friends, there is only one mediator between God and man, and that's Jesus Christ. And so the Scriptures encourage us in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, come boldly to the throne of grace. Friends, Jesus opened the way In fact, Jesus said, I am the way. Oh, friends, do you have burdens that you need to unload? Do you long to go right to your heavenly Father and find peace? Why not come to Him now? We can go directly to Him. We can come in faith. We can ask for forgiveness. And He will respond is that the desire of your heart who's going to be your guide is it going to be jesus or is it going to be a an institution of error let's pray oh loving father lord there may be some hearts here right now that are hurting But Lord, I want to remind those people that we're not talking about individuals. We're talking about a broken system. And Father, I pray that You would help each one of us come out of a broken system and come into the truth. Lord, You say that Your people perish because we don't have a love of the truth. Lord, we have seen convincing proof here tonight. And I pray that as we go home, that You would help us to fall in love with the truth because Jesus said, I am the truth. And so we're really falling in love with You. Lord, I pray that the Holy Spirit would strive with us. Help us to surrender our hearts to the truth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.